deconstruction. We accept the common definition as a Christian phenomenon where people unpack, rethink, examine their belief systems. We do not believe that deconstruction is inherently good or bad. Depending on how it is approached, it can lead to a variety of conclusions, including the strengthening, adjusting, or abandonment of one's faith. The reason why we would do a series on this topic is because many people in this cultural moment are deconstructing their faith and then walking away from a relationship with Jesus as a result, which we see as a tragic problem. We believe that the God of the universe has revealed himself in the person of Jesus, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the composition of the Bible. Our mission in this series is to equip the saints for standing up against the lies of our culture that call God's word into question by twisting its meaning or by rejecting its authority altogether. Are you building something up or tearing something down? We refuse to be content with almost true. Church, y'all showed up this weekend. Wow, come on, church, showing up on a wonderful holiday weekend. My name is Logan. I serve here over Generation Ministries, primarily over youth ministry. And today you've got a special treat because I am on my seventh shot of espresso. (laughs) And I was feeling it in worship. I was like, that is the Lord and the coffee for sure. I have the privilege and honor of, of, of bringing this series on deconstruction to a close this morning, and I just want to kind of recap of of what we've been on in this journey and how important it is that we're preaching these things because the world is coming at us and attacking what we believe and we need to have a proper defense. Man, I think back to week one with our special guest, Nathan Finocchio, preaching on the avocado toast, that God, he has preferences, right? He likes his toast a certain way. And then next week, we had our senior pastor, J.O., share with us about holy sexuality, One of the biggest deconstruction topics, I would say, in our culture today. What a beautiful word he shared. Then the following week, we had Seth share about the authority of Scripture and the canonization of the Word. It was so rich. And then last week, Craig and his wonderful Lego analogy. (laughs) That God's kingdom is built with certain pieces, and we should not add to it. So today I would like to take us on kind of a different journey. We've been talking about things that the world is deconstructing, but what I would like to talk to you about today is maybe some things that us as the believers should deconstruct. I believe that every great theologian is a great deconstructionist. Because when you start digging deeper into the word, you are, you're taking apart, but you're putting back together because you just want to know more about him. But I believe in culture today, maybe there are some things that maybe we've allowed in that need to be deconstructed and removed. I think of what Craig preached last week. Are we building God's kingdom? Or are we adding pieces that are not supposed to be there? So many of our culture's hot topics seem new to us, but the truth is they're not. Generation to generation, the same things have come to the surface. Homosexuality is not a new thing. Abortion is not a new thing. 
people, there is nothing new. There is nothing new. In Matthew 4, Jesus has just been baptized and the heavens are open and God says, this is my son. Then Jesus goes into the wilderness and fasts for 40 days. And the first way that the devil tempts him is by saying, if you are the son of God. As if to say, did God really say that? Jesus counters this temptation by quoting scripture. Then the devil twists scripture again and tries to question Jesus' identity and God's word again. If you are the son of God. And proceeds to quote scripture, but it's out of context and to the wrong conclusions, which is exactly what deconstructionists do today. Deconstruction, as we understand, it may seem new to us, but the enemy has been doing it since the beginning and even tried it on Jesus. See, church, there is nothing new. The enemy shows himself in many ways. From a snake in a garden to an angel of light. He appears in different ways to different people. But there are some things that I know are true about the enemy. He is a liar. He is a destroyer. And he is a deconstructionist. If he can't get us to turn away from God, he will do his best to distract us and make us question or deconstruct. Maybe he will just get us to be comfortable, apathetic, passive, allowing things to be that shouldn't. I believe our culture today has influenced us, brought believers to question, to deconstruct. And if the enemy can't have us, he will try to divide our devotion, worshiping God, but adding to, removing from, or allowing in. Adding to, removing from, or allowing in. This is the influence of the enemy. A culture that allows the worship of many gods with Christians also influenced. Divided devotion. Worshiping Yahweh, but also maybe some of these little G gods. Remember, the enemy appears in many forms. Divided devotion. See, nothing is new. Many are just following in the same footsteps of those that went before us. So I'd like to start the story with a king. He's the son of David. His name is Solomon. He was the wisest man to ever live. A man that worshipped God, but during his reign, also allowed in foreign gods. Even with all of the wisdom, he didn't see the effects that this would have on him and his people. 
It wasn't until he was near the end of his life that I believe he started to realize. He gave us the book of Proverbs, Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, we see a man at the end of his life. He calls himself the preacher. Writing from a place that seems to be filled with regret. A king that has gone sour with age. Let's see what sour Solomon has to say to us. From a very encouraging book, Ecclesiastes. <laughs> Starting in chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuit, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new underneath the sun. This is like a depressing Dr. Seuss. <laughs> I told you, 11 11's getting something special. <laughs> is there a thing of which it is said, say, this is new? It has been already in the age before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who have come. There is nothing new underneath the sun. A couple interesting things. You know, I don't know if you know this. I didn't grow up in the church. I was a heathen until I was like 26. But something I've observed since I've come to know Jesus Every generation of Christians seem to believe in some things. Every generation seems to believe that their generation is when the end is going to come. Can you not tell that things are so dark right now? And then people that were alive during the World War II are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and it goes back and back and back all the way to the apostles. Because Jesus literally said to them, Hey, before y'all die, I'm coming back. Jokes. <laughs> Another thing that every generation seems to believe. <sighs> Have you seen the world out there? I'm just looking to the sky because I know Jesus is on his way. Jesus is coming back in my generation. For sure, right? Hey, I'm one of those. I'm like, it's crazy. Jesus got to be coming back. But every generation seems to believe this. Now, as charismatics, I know we all believe this one. This is the generation of revival. Yeah, baby, let's go. <laughs> that was not very charismatic of y'all. <laughs> that was like a 25% hoot and holler right there. Well, we'll see if. Revival's poured out in this generation, I guess. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> See, generations before us dealt with the same issues we deal with today. 
They're dealing with the same thing. Nothing is new. A call had gone out nationwide to assemble at Mount Carmel. Now the peak, it was bustling with thousands of people. Present were 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. Standing before the people was a man wearing a hairy garment and a leather belt around his waist. This was Elijah the Tizabite. This well-known confrontation that is found in 1 Kings chapter 18 epitomizes the centrally wrong struggle Israel had in keeping the covenant they made with God. Over and over and over again, the people of God said, all the words which the Lord had said, we will do. (laughs) Good luck. See, the Lord, he knew better. He's almost like, it's almost like he's smarter than us, right? Before Moses died, God revealed to him that Israel would play the harlot after the strange gods of the land. And they did just that. From this point in the story, we see a people with divided devotion. Really, Israel always worshiped other gods, until all that remained was the tribe of Judah, or what is what is now called the Jews. What we call what we call this is polytheism. Polytheism is the belief in worship of more than one God. Monotheism, which means the worship of a singular God, isn't seen in Israel until the sixth century BC. See, they worshipped Yahweh, but they still kept altars to other gods. They're like, hey, yeah, we get it. You're the God of gods. Like, you can do anything. Like, you can turn a person into salt. You can shoot fire from the sky. Like, we get it. We've seen some crazy stuff. We're worshiping you. But, hey, I'm just, I'm going to keep this little side thing over here. You know, Baal's been good to me. (laughs) It's kind of like their life is like, yeah, I worship Yahweh plus. Some people need to cancel that subscription. Hey, hear what I said now, okay? I didn't attack. (laughs) They worshiped Yahweh, but they still kept altars to other gods. There's nothing new. We are still doing this today. Still allowing idolatry and the worship of false gods. Now, a disclaimer. No one progresses from worshiping God one day to worshiping false gods the next. No one progresses from being a beloved bride to a harlot overnight. Israel's transition into harlotry began by merely mingling with the other nations in a state of peaceful coexistence. Oh, yeah, like we worship Yahweh, but, you know, I mean, we're not over there in that place. Like, we'll we'll just leave the the cult worshipers alone. They mingled with the nations, but over time they learned their practices. And over time they served their idols. And this became a snare to them. They mingled, they learned, and then they served. 
Their seemingly innocent mingling with the nations led them to learn their practices and serve their gods. Instead of fulfilling the mandate to take God into the marketplace and influence culture, it appears that they were being influenced by the culture. They were not willing to identify, confront, and tear down the false god worship in the culture. So let's talk about some of these little G gods that Israel worshipped. I wonder if we will see some similarities to our culture today. The first one we're going to talk about is probably the most prominent, and his name is Baal. Yes, I'm saying that right. (laughs) When the Israelites invaded Canaan under Joshua in 1406 BC, the Canaanites worshipped local gods known as Baals or Baal. Was believed to be the son of El, which would be like the, the, the god over all. His name actually means Lord or Master. Baal was the male god of fertility both in human reproduction and agriculture. He was responsible for bringing the rain and to assure abundant crops. Interesting, on my my journey into the scriptures, I found this cool little nugget. And sometimes I'm careful to share like nuggets I find, because like I said, I was a heathen until I was 26. And sometimes I'm like, dude, I found this really cool thing in the Bible. And then one of my friends that's like always been saved... (laughs) He's like, oh, yeah, bro, we learned that in Sunday school. I'm like, I didn't go to Sunday school. I didn't know about the Red Sea till I was 27. Y'all learned a song when you were five. (laughs) I was singing Snoop Dogg. (laughs) Y'all are getting something special today. Fun fact, Snoop Dogg has a nursery rhyme show now. (laughs) <laughs> never know what people are going to do next. So as I'm, as I'm searching out this, the, I'm studying this God, I found this really cool fact is that later in tradition, in the time of Jesus, they started to refer to this God in a different way that you might be more familiar with. So his, his name through history was Baal, but later people started to call him Baal Zebub. More familiar? The Jewish leaders in Jesus' time understood Beelzebub to be the prince of the devils or Satan himself. Fun fact. The way that you celebrate him, his death and his, or his, his birth and his death, it's the opposite of Jesus. Right? Or kind of like anti-Christ. Yeah. And then one of the primary ways that you would worship him during the time of Jesus, is you would sacrifice your firstborn son. And you would take him to this place outside of Jerusalem that they called the fires of Gehenna. Gehenna is actually the root word to one that's translated as hell in the New Testament. It's the reference that Jesus was giving when he was talking about, hey, you don't want to go there. It's worse than this. Beelzebub. The spread of Baal worship owed much to intermarriage with foreign women who worship Baal. An example of this is when King Ahab married Jezebel. Baal worship not only involved ritual prostitution and degrading sexual practices, but it also included child sacrifice. 
These gods are super fun, aren't they? Worship me, but give me everything first and see if maybe your crops survive. <laughs> Crazy. The next god we're going to talk about is Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth was a Canaanite fertility goddess. Worship of Ashtoreth was widespread during the time of the judges and throughout the kings of Israel and Judah. Ashtoreth was believed to be the mother of Baal. She was worshipped through idols, Ashtoreth poles, and in extreme cases, illicit heterosexual or homosexual acts. Sometimes even sexual acts with cult prostitutes out in public for all to see. And child sacrifice was also prevalent in worship to her. The next God we talk about, his name is Chemosh. Chemosh was the God of Moab. The Moabites are recorded as worshiping Chemosh in the time of Moses. But it was not until King Solomon built a high place or an altar to Chemosh on the Mount of Olives that the worship was officially sanctioned by Israel. The worship of Chemosh was another pagan religion that practiced the ritual sacrifice of children. The last one we're going to talk about, he's nasty. I don't like this one above all the other ones. His name, Molech. Molech, the god of Ammon, was also introduced to Israel by guess who? Solomon. And his Ammonite wives with their foreign followers. Prior to this, prior to Solomon saying it's okay, any Israelite or foreigner who sacrificed his child to Molech was guilty of an abomination in the eyes of Yahweh and was put to death. After the official toleration of this foreign religion, children were burned alive on the altars of Topheth. King Azar and Manasseh sacrificed their own sons in this place, which is also known as the fires of Gehenna. One form of the altar of Molech came in the representation of a female womb. The sacrificed child was placed into the cavity or the womb of the idol, and then it was heated up with fire while they pounded drums so they wouldn't hear the baby scream as it burned alive. Sanctioned by Solomon. He worshiped God, he worshiped Yahweh, but he allowed this to take place. Lord have mercy. It's too early to cry. Logan, stop. <laughs> so, what did the worship of these false gods entail? Some pretty dark things. Do they seem harmless? Can we just allow it over here and over here? We're good. Like, our church is healthy, right? We don't allow it in our building. There are high places and altars all around us, people. And they need to be torn down. This is why God was so adamant that his people not get caught up in this worship. The three primary ways these false gods were worshipped was through sexual immorality, prostitution, and child sacrifice. Does this sound familiar? There is nothing 
new under the sun. Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Amaziah, Uzziah, Jotham, all once kings of Israel. And what did they have in common? They all worshipped Yahweh, but also worshipped other gods. Yahweh plus. Yahweh plus. Then came a king named Manasseh. For 55 years, this very wicked king ruled. Of Manasseh, it is said, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the host of heavens and served them. Just real quick, that's, that's one form of worship that I didn't touch on when we were talking about the gods. But the worship of the host of heavens was the worship of the sun and the moon and the astrology of the sky. Nothing is new. And he built altars in the house of the Lord and he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. This dude was wicked. He took it to the next level, y'all. He didn't just say Jesus plus, he, or Yahweh plus. He put the plus sign over Yahweh and he brought the worship of these other gods into the temple of Yahweh. So for perspective right now, we have a temple that for generations has been built, torn down, and rebuilt, and is supposed to be made for the worship of the one and only true God. And this evil dude comes along and he says, ah, I'm a little too tired traveling up the mountain to say hi to Baal. Let's go ahead and put him in here. And by this time with Manasseh, he has literally put Asherah poles in there for, for the worship of Asherah, for the worship of Baal. It's crazy. There's cult prostitution going on in the temple. Like, this is crazy, y'all. It's like if we abandon this building tomorrow and a homeless community took it over and it's just full of drug addiction and murders. It's crazy, y'all. But finally, there came a good king. Josiah. Oh, Josiah, how I wish that we could have a generation of Josiahs. I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe that the kids that are being raised up in this house are gonna be Josiahs to this city. That at a young age, at a young age, parents, our kiddos are gonna make a difference. If Josiah could do it at 18, what can our kiddo do at 18? Come on, Lord, give us... Josiah's in this house. So I want to share the majority of the story of Josiah with you, but it would be a lot of scripture to read. So please bear with me as I'm going to summarize a lot of this. Is that okay? Cool. We're going to start in 2 Kings 22. Starting in verse 1, it says this, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of David, his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. 
After this point in the story, we see that Josiah has commissioned the temple to be rebuilt because it has just become decrepit over the years. During the rebuilding, Hilkiah, the high priest, finds the book of the law, which had been lost to the people for some time. The book of the law had been ignored for 57 years. During the 55-year reign of Manasseh, of course, he's not reading it, the two-year reign of his son, Ammon, and then 18 years into the reign of Josiah, which brings us to where we are. The people were so far from Yahweh with their idolatry and their worship of false gods that the book was forgotten. Hear me right. The book was not lost. The book was forgotten. The book was forgotten. We need the word of God. It cannot be forgotten. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot be undervalued. It is the word of God that transforms the heart of man. But that is not my sermon right now. <laughs> so let's continue into the passage. It says in verse 11, When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Now think about it. This, this young man has a good heart towards God. He's trying to be a good leader. And now the high priest has brought this book to him and he opens it and he discovers that there's this one true God and his name's Yahweh and he's been in pursuit of him since the beginning and he's even given him the land that he stands on. He's given him the kingdom and the throne that he reigns upon today. And Josiah is so overwhelmed like, oh man, we have got this so wrong. He tears his clothes as a symbol of anguish and God forgive us. He's, he's hit with the truth of the word. The word changed him. Skipping forward to chapter 23, in verse 1 it says, Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests, and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing, all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And check this out. And all the people joined in the covenant. With good leadership comes great followers. We need a Josiah to reign. One that is willing to bring us back to the heart of God. Lord, give us a Josiah. He read the word in front of all the people and it didn't say few decided to respond. It says all. Talk about revival. Wow. Could you imagine preaching the word down at Coeur d'Alene Beach and every single person in town gets saved? What is that, 56,800 and something people? Come on, evangelists, you got to know, right? we got to keep track of those numbers of those people that need to be saved. <laughs> Come on. Josiah restores covenant with God and vows to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments. 
Then Josiah proceeds to, be, to do something amazing. He becomes the greatest deconstructionist in all of history because he deconstructed all of the false gods that were worshipped and kept the one and the only. Because Yahweh plus nothing equals everything. We don't need Yahweh plus. Canceled. <laughs> Logan. <laughs> King Josiah. King Josiah. The greatest deconstructionist that ever lived. So let's read through this great deconstruction that he did and be reminded of some of the gods that we've talked about today. I'm going to paraphrase this section, but this is out of chapter 3, verses 4 through 20. He commanded Josiah, Hilkiah, the high priest, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal and Asherah and for all the hosts of heaven. He burned them and carried their ashes to Bethel. So the first thing he does is he says, how dare we allow the worship of these gods in this house to this true God? Get all of this out now. Clean the house. He then killed the priests who made offerings in the high places, who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of the heavens. He brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord and he burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to the dust. He broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord where the woman wove hangings to Asherah. He defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. Ooh, we need a Josiah. Come on, Lord, give us a Josiah. <laughs> he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. He defiled the high places which Solomon had built for Ashereth and for Chemosh. He pulled down the altar at Bethel and burned it, reducing it to dust. He removed all the shrines also of the high places which kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. And at the end of this section, then it says, and then he went back to Jerusalem. Y'all, Josiah was very specific I think about if this happened in our day and like we never had the Bible, we're like, oh man, we gotta like really correct right now. Like we gotta take down all these idols. It would probably be more like, let's just burn everything down and start over. <laughs> that would be a lot easier. But no, Josiah is specific. This dude is like Navy SEAL King, right? He is Navy SEAL King for sure, huh, Robbie? This dude is like, okay, we've cleaned the temple. Now clean the city. Once the city's done, move out to every territory. Because see, these gods that were worshipped, they had control of different territories. Right? So there's principalities that have control over an area that might be different than another area. And Josiah knew this, so he was on a rampage. He said, I ain't just going to tear this down. I'm going to burn it and I'm going to throw it in the river. Maybe some other things need to get lit on fire this weekend. Logan. 
I told, I told everybody last gathering, this is not me calling you to war to go burn things down. And then I had the sweetest, sweetest lady ever that come up to me and said, honestly, Logan, I think you shouldn't have said that. You should have told us to go burn some things down. So 11-11, burn it down. Be a Josiah. He tore down every altar and every shrine, every place of worship that was not to Yahweh. Yahweh plus nothing equals everything. Deconstruction for good and for the glory of God. Burn it down. Who? <laughs> I want to share a story with you out of one of my favorite books. Is that okay? This is a, a book by a local author from Spokane. His name is Jim Anderson. He's over at Victory Faith. And in the beginning of my walk with Jesus, I had some struggles, and this book changed my life. The book is called Unmasked. And I want to share just a, a, a couple passages from it. He says this in his book. I had spent years working in the pro-life movement in the United States. We were those people on television, engaging in peaceful, nonviolent protests and getting arrested at abortion clinics. After a series of protests and repeated arrests, I began to ask, God, why, with all the time and energy we have spent laboring to stop abortion, does nothing change? And then God began to show me that we had depersonalized the issue of abortion. We had made it an objective issue, a topic of debate, a historical Supreme Court decision, and a term paper topic for an English class. We had forgotten that abortion is not an impersonal issue. It has always been about someone's daughter, wife, sister, or mother. Abortion is not just about taking the life of children. Everywhere we gathered, radical homosexuals would stand opposing us, fighting for abortion rights. And I thought, they can't get pregnant. Why are they fighting so hard for something that seems to have nothing to do with them? Then it dawned on me. Abortion is about the worship of sex. The fight over abortion is not simply about the killing of innocent children or the so-called freedom of choice. Rather, it is an attempt to remove any restrictions, boundaries, or limitations on sex, homosexual or heterosexual, period. When sex is worshipped, there has to be abortion. The resulted children must be eliminated because their presence will wreak havoc on the, the whole system. The presence of children demands a family, commitment, and permanence. Therefore, in order for sex to continue without restrictions, the children must be silenced. Lord, have mercy on us. couple pages letter in this book, he starts sharing this story of a trip that he took to New Orleans. 
I'm going to read it for you. It says, in the early 1990s, I traveled to New Orleans to join fellow believers from across the country for a week of pro-life prayer rallies. At that time, New Orleans was the murder capital of the country with 13 to 17 murders weekly. As pro-life people began pouring in from all over the country for the scheduled event, the abortion clinics shut down for the week in order to avoid having to deal with us. Despite those closures, we obtained the appropriate permits and gathered in front of the clinics. Generators for sound systems were put up and worship teams led us as we gathered to pray and worship God. Where days before there had been altars of death in the city, we established altars of life in their place. In a place of despair, we spoke hope. Then something very strange happened. Not only were no abortions being performed, but the first day we prayed, worshiped, and stood in open opposition to abortion, not a single murder was committed in the entire city of New Orleans. We continued to worship on day two again, building altars to God in our hearts, in the place where the enemy had been having his way with the generation. Again, the entire second day passed and not a single murder was committed. The same thing happened on the third day. This phenomenon of consecutive homicide-free days was so significant and notable that on the fourth day, the police called for a press conference and announced, due to our superior training and intellect, we as the New Orleans Police Department have eradicated murder. People always trying to take credit for what God's doing. We continue to worship and pray for days five, six, and seven. And on the eighth day, it was rumored that a murder had taken place outside of the city limits. Yet, New Orleans itself continued to remain murder-free. Remember how I said, God's have power over territories. Inside New Orleans, it remained murder-free. Police reports announced that 30% of every category of crime had also dropped. Some of the police officers joked with us, asking us to stay longer, said, it's like a paid vacation. We love having you here. Wow. (laughs) Haven't seen that before. Pro-life activists were having their picture taken with the police commanders. Police began giving us escorts, surrounding us on the highway with their lights flashing as we drove to yet another clinic in the city to pray and worship God. We began to ask ourselves if there could be a link between our activities and the crime-free atmosphere of the city. In that week, when all the abortion clinics were shut down, Altars of worship to God were erected in their place. And prayers for his mercy had been offered. And the atmosphere of the entire city was tangibly changed. I wonder if in that little window of eight days, heaven opened up over a city because innocent blood had for the moment ceased to be shed. It was as if sanity broke out through the fog and began to settle over the minds of the people in the city. 
After we left, the abortion clinics resumed their practices and the crime statistics rose back to their normal rates. Was God trying to teach us something or was this a gigantic coincidence? Oh Lord, do it here. Lord, do it here. That we would no longer sacrifice innocent people. And we would see our nation changed. We would see our cities changed. Now I can't read my notes. <laughs> Dang it. So I want to I take you back to the beginning. With the first king that we talked about, Solomon. As King Solomon grew older, he became increasingly involved in the worship of foreign gods imported into Israel by his 700 foreign wives. Amongst other foreign gods, he implicitly gave royal sanction, or as the leader said, this is now allowed, to the worship of Ashtoreth, Molech, and Chemosh. I believe this is one reason why he had become so sour at the end of his life. Solomon didn't realize the effect the worship of foreign gods had on his life. Will we wait till the end of our lives to realize the effect this worship has on us? Or, like Josiah, will we tear down the altars of false God worship and focus on the one and only God, Yahweh? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. He is all we need and he is all anybody needs. Nothing is new, my friends.